Uh, Would you turn with me this morning to Genesis chapter 17? Genesis 17, as we read together through the whole chapter. Genesis 17, starting in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from among any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he and who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all those born in his house were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day. God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house 
Those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. This is God's living and active word. Let's go to him now and ask for his blessing as we seek to not only understand it, but to submit ourselves to it in obedience and to glorify our God. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time. And we pray now, Lord, that as we come before the light of the truth of your word, you would use it as a sharp, two-edged sword to pierce within the depths of our darkened hearts and there enlighten and enliven our lives so that we might not only repent of the sin that we need to repent of, but Lord, that you would encourage us in faithfulness, helping us to, Lord, be encouraged in faithfulness to our Savior, Jesus Christ, as the good fruit of your word. We pray this now in Jesus' name. I think it's fair to say that we live in a time where we don't have a lot of trust anymore. At least not the things people used to trust. Since the 60s, we've been more and more losing our trust in our governing authorities. We've, generally speaking, lost trust in any media, at least as much as we used to trust them. There seems to be a rise even in our mistrust of any kind of medical or scientific authority these days. Sadly, even the church is cashed in on this, and, and many people don't trust anything that even smells like organized religion. What can we count on these days? Who can we really trust? Who today can we point to who remains constant? Someone who can be trusted absolutely. Well, my entire life, not only as a pastor, but as a Christian, and I pray your lives as Christians as well, would be founded on the reality that God can be trusted and thus His Word can be trusted. God, who is eternal, unchanging, and absolute, has given us a timeless, unchanging, and absolutely perfect Word. I really believe that, and I hope and pray that we really believe that we can trust Him. Okay. But how can I know? And specifically, how can I trust that God is there for me Especially when I do things that are so untrustworthy. You know what I mean? Sure, God can be trusted, but, but isn't it hard to believe sometimes that God is working in your life when your life is so filled with mistakes, so filled with sin, so filled with moment after moment of letting God down? If I'm faithless, will God remain faithful to me? I think these were the kinds of questions that must have plagued Abram's mind. Look at how verse 1 opens up. When Abram was 99 years old. Now, look back just one verse earlier, at the end of chapter 16. And what do we see there? Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. I think what Moses is intending to communicate to us here as the readers is that for some 13 years, between the end of chapter 16 and the beginning of chapter 17, some 13 years, now a cloud of silent suspense has hung over Abraham's tent. 13 years of silent darkness since Abram and Sarai had hatched that horrible plan to conceive a child through Hagar, not Abram's wife, and have a son. 
Can you imagine the marital tension going on between Abram and Sarai during these 13 years? Especially as Ishmael rushed into manhood as a 13-year-old, now standing as a continual sacrament to Abram and Sarai's sin. And here, Sarai, uh, no spring chicken herself, was still barren. Abram, a, a year shy of being 100 years old, had to wonder, is God still faithful to me? Or have I forfeited his promises because of my unfaithfulness? I think that's why we see the dark valley of chapter 16 come in between the mountaintops of chapter 15 and what we just read in chapter 17. Moses is reminding us, the readers, that we can still trust God even when we do things that make a mess of it all. And hear me out here. Making a mess of it all is not okay. That's not the point I'm trying to get across here, right? Uh, uh, Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? What does Paul say in Romans 6? May it never be. But nonetheless, the wonderful truth we're bombarded with in Scripture and what we see so clearly here is that our messes don't mess up God. God is still trustworthy. And what we'll see in the rest of chapter 17 is how God intends to strengthen Abram's faith in the trustworthiness of God and in his promises. God does this first through introducing himself with a new name. You see that there in verse 1? When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Here, the Lord calls forth a new name for himself. El Shaddai, God Almighty. This is the first time we see this great name in the Bible. And it's a name that signifies God's power. The word Shaddai, I think, comes from the image of a mountain, something immovable, high and lifted up, an impressive reality that reaches up into the heavens and provides a strong stability here on earth. It's a name that appears some 31 times in the book of Job as a means of encouragement to a man deep in trials and surrounded by suffering. El Shaddai, the God who is able. El Shaddai the immovable God, of the God who is high and lifted up and whose head is above the storm clouds, the God who provides safety from the mess of this world below. I am El Shaddai, Almighty God, who is able to fulfill all the awesome hopes I have set before you, faithful to bring you, Abram, a people and a place. Abram, no longer do you need to trust in the ways of of this world. No longer do you need to trust in sinful schemes to bring about a lineage. No, Abram, all your life, all your future lies in this one truth. I am El Shaddai, the God Almighty. This is why he immediately says, walk before me and be blameless. If you knew what kind of God I really am, You wouldn't need to go after these silly ideas, these sinful schemes of sleeping with Hagar to get a son. No, Abram, know me for who I really am and live accordingly. Trust me, obey me, I am God. Just a side note here. This is why theology, study of knowing God is so important. Theology is not just this cold, dry, something that we do to puff up our minds. It's knowing God, which keeps us from knowing sin. 
What's fascinating is throughout the rest of the Old Testament, whenever we see God walk before somebody, so God walking before in front of somebody, it's a symbol of God's guidance and protection, right? So think of God walking before the Israelites as a pillar of cloud in the wilderness or the ark of God's presence going before the army of Israel as their divine protection. But whenever we see people walk before God, people before God, it serves as an expression of their representing God. They're being ambassadors for God. So when God commands Abram to walk before him, God is calling Abram here, in a sense, to be his missionary representative to the world. When the world sees Abram, they will see what it looks like to have a relationship with the El Shaddai. Here's what this means for us. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the immutable, unchanging God who is forever El Shaddai. Christian, here is your God. And what you believe about God, the kind of God you believe in, will shape the way you live and how you represent Him. A God who is impotent to help. A God who is too weak to change situations or change human hearts. A God who is too weak to have any grasp upon the future. That will be a God who ultimately leads you to trust in yourself. A God who cannot deal with your anxieties. A God who is unable to be a rock of safety in the midst of any storm. So Christian, trust in the God of the Bible, the Lord God Almighty, who alone is able to save. And then walk obediently as you trust and follow after that God. God is calling us to be his representatives to the world today. Do you know El Shaddai? Does the world know El Shaddai when they see your life? Well, secondly, we see God strengthen Abram's faith not only in how he introduces himself with a new name, but now we see God give Abram a new name. Then Abram fell on his face. God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Here we see a symbolic act of God's grace working in and transforming Abram's life. Right? Names in the Bible were intimately wrapped up in who a person was. When someone was named, their very character and who they were and their essential being was being described in that name. And so here, when God renames Abram, we see God exerting his lordship over Abram and saying, I not only have the prerogative to rename you, but in the act of renaming you, I am also expressing my ability to remake you, to work in you in such a way that your life really does reflect your name. The name Abram simply meant exalted father. But now his new name, changed to Abraham, literally means father of a multitude. God is showing that he will fulfill his promise through this old man. He will bring children, lots of them, a multitude, through this one man, Abraham. Every time people called him Abraham, they would reiterate God's covenant promise. How many times do you think that that would happen in any given day? A hundred? Two hundred? Abraham? Abraham? 
Good morning, father of a multitude. How's your day been today, O father of a multitude? Do you see? God is strengthening his faith in God's covenant promise by giving him this constant reminder, this new name. Did you notice the promise that God gave in verse 6? I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Of course, we're beginning to see here the ways in which God was laying the redemptive groundwork for the coming of Jesus Christ. The Gospel of Matthew picks up on this promise, and and Matthew begins his Gospel with the opening verse, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Here in Genesis is the first prediction of the coming of the ultimate King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus the Messiah. Here again, Abraham is having his trust strengthened. God Almighty is giving him a greater perspective on what will be. Abraham will be the father of a multitude, a father of kings. God is saying here, Abraham, lift up your eyes, old man, and stop looking at the situation you see yourself in right now. Stop looking around and using your your current experience as a barometer for what I'm doing. Stop looking what's going on around you and start listening to what I've promised you. My word, my promise has more of a barometer on what's real than what you see. Trust me, he says. What God does next, well, I think is bring Abraham even deeper into into his covenant trust. He gives Abraham a sign, a, a covenant sign, meant to be a perpetual, irreversible symbol of God's faithful promise. Look at verse 9 and following. God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations whether born in your house or bought with money or the foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house or bought with money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised, verse 14, in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Well, just as God gave Noah the rainbow as a covenant sign. And later, if you read in Exodus, God gives Moses the Sabbath as a covenant sign. Well, so now God gives Abraham this covenant sign of circumcision. It was a sign replete with meaning, not not merely a kind of random, painful test of, of how brave Abraham's spiritual commitment could be. No, it was a sign which communicated the deeper reality of what God was doing. In one sense, well, at least according to verse 14, the sign is given to define membership in the covenant community. And do you see that there? Any circumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. If you are not circumcised, then you could not have a passport, as it were, into the covenant blessing of God's promises. A a, a failure to obey God in the cutting off of circumcision, symbolized a being cut off from God. 
But in another sense, it highlighted God's promise to Abraham that he would have children. Even though Abraham might falter and fail to walk blamelessly at times, God would not falter. This is what he says in verse 11 and at the end of verse 13. See? You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And then there at the end of verse 13, so shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Consider the ironic symbolism. Abraham, you will have a child. You will be a father to a multitude of people. You get that? So here's what I want you to do. Take this dangerous knife and I want you to cut off a part of the very means by which you'll come to have children. What? But what I think is going on here is a, is a perpetual reminder that God would work in and through any situation, even the most precarious of situations. Abraham's shaky faith, perhaps much like his shaky hands in this covenant ritual, could not thwart God's steady and trustworthy power. Here was an everlasting covenant, something that could not be revoked or taken back or lost. Remember last week, Keith ran into the office and says, oh no, where'd my wedding band go? Right? Uh, praise God, you're still married. But uh, uh, this is something that can be thrown away. Not so with circumcision. Here was an external sign of a permanent, irrevocable truth. I will be your God, and you will be my people, and that is irrevocable. But it was also bloody. It symbolized judgment, right? Just as God walked through the cut and bloodied animals of Genesis 15, symbolizing the judgment that that God would uh, uh, take upon himself to keep his covenant promise, Well, so too here do we see the sign of judgment applied to Abraham's foreskin. Turning the sign into a reality only meant applying the knife just a little bit more, right? Essentially cutting Abraham's seed off. Both the bloodied judgment of Genesis 15, God walks through the bloodied animals, and the bloodied sign of Genesis 17, they both point forward, I think, to a bloodied judgment of Jesus' crucifixion. There where the Son of God became the slaughtered lamb of Genesis 15, and then there where the Son of Man in his flesh was cut off in judgment in fulfillment of Genesis 17. Ultimately, the significance of circumcision pointed to the bloodshed of Jesus Christ. The new covenant community of God's people would no longer be marked by circumcision, but by faith in Jesus. As Paul puts it in Galatians 5, verse 6, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working in love. Or as he writes later in Galatians 6, 15, Far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation that is being born again in Christ. Perhaps most strong is Paul's words to the Gentile Christians of Philippi, We're in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. He says, We Christians, we are the circumcision. We who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Do you see? What we see in Jesus Christ is the full flowering of God's covenant promise to Abraham. 
In Jesus, we see the one true faithful seed of Abraham. He who was the only man who walked before God blamelessly, but he who was also blameless and faithful and cut off. Who in his death upon the cross bore the covenantal curse we all deserve. The author of Hebrews tells us that by means of his own blood, he has secured for us an eternal redemption. That he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are in him may receive the promised internal inheritance. Paul so powerfully puts it at the end of Galatians 3. Friends, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then, says Paul, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Of course, for us to be an heir of that promise, well, there must have been a seed that ultimately came from Abraham. And in the rest of Genesis 17, we see God kind of zero in on this promise. Just as God introduces himself with a new name and then he renames Abram into Abraham, well, so now we see God rename Sarai to Sarah. God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be your name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations, kings of peoples shall come from her. The name Sarai meant princess. But actually, so does the new name Sarah. It also means princess. So what's up with that? Perhaps we see here God's plan all along to use Sarah as the mother of future kings. She had always been the royal princess God intended to use in bringing about the covenant blessings of future kings and the future king. Even in light of all that she had been through, even in light of her Eve-like scheming of chapter 16, in light of her nearly being a hundred years old herself, she was still God's intended princess. Not only would Sarah bear a child as an old woman, but the sacred royal dynasty would have blood in his veins from Sarah, a royal mother. She to a future lion from the tribe of Judah. What was Abraham's response? Verse 17 Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall Sarah, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Well, he began well, didn't he, by falling prostrate on the ground, showing God this deepest of respect. But as he lay there, Abraham couldn't, He couldn't restrain the giggles coming from within. (laughs) Evidently, I mean, he really did believe, I think, what God had said. But as he thought about the reality of what God was doing, he he couldn't help but laugh about it. She'll be 90? I'm about to be 100 years old? (laughs) What is going on? I, I don't think this was a sinful laugh. We don't see God rebuke Abraham here at all, as he will do later with Sarah when she laughs. No, I think Abraham was just really tickled at the amazing nature of what was happening. 
laughing that God was waiting to bring about this fulfilled promise only when it seemed the most absurd. And it really is. Think about the fulfillment of this promise. We talked about this before when we studied through Hebrews. Where one night, Sarah leans over to Abraham. Did God really? You think God really meant we're going to have a child? I guess so. All right. What do you want to do tonight? The absurdity of this 90-year-old and a 100-year-old. Well, just as Paul tells us in Romans 4, in hope, Abraham believed against hope that he really should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which is as good as dead. Since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No, says Paul, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. What was God's response to Abraham's laugh-filled faith? Here we see a fourth name introduced in verse 19. God says, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. And then verse 21, I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Now the name Isaac means laughter. Isaac was God's laugh-filled reminder that he was a faithful God. Here, the naming of Abraham's first son as laughter, as Isaac, was God laughing along with Abraham. Yeah, I did do it that way. What a dynamic series of events we see here. The Lord introduced as El Shaddai, the Almighty, naming his servant Abraham, a man a hundred years old, a father of a multitude along with his royal princess, 90-year-old Sarah, who together they would bring about a royal dynasty together through Isaac, the son of laughter. And so, verse 22, when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house were brought, bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he, he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day immediate obedience as God had said to him Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin Ishmael his son 13 years old that very day Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised and all the men of his house Abraham's soul was strengthened to trust in his almighty God and so what does he do immediately In the midst of blood and pain, in the midst of the pain of circumcision, we see the laughter of God and the laughter of Abraham's obedience. Abraham, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the suffering of circumcision, despising the shame, looking forward to the greater promise of God's covenant blessing. That greater covenant blessing would ultimately come in the person of Jesus Christ, It was Jesus Christ, His shed blood, where we would see the establishment of a new covenant. It was there in the 
death of Jesus Christ, where Christ was cut off on our behalf, or the ultimate and true meaning of circumcision enacted in the blameless Son of God. Listen to what Paul says about this this circumcision in Colossians chapter 2. In Christ, O Christians, you also were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus' body was cut away for our sin. He was cut off from God, crying out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? So that we, you and I, might become children of Abraham. Men and women circumcised with the circumcision of the heart, born again to new life in Christ. And so the question we're, we're left with this morning is this. Do you trust in our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ? In this day and age where it seems we no longer trust our authorities, we no longer trust our rulers and officials, friends, do you trust the King of Kings, Christ, who was cut off for you? He gave himself for you. As we go to the Lord now in song and sing that we would be committed, let's ask the Lord to work within us a circumcision of heart that expresses itself in daily obedience, committed obedience to the only one who is trustworthy, our King of kings and Lord of lords.